Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a realm where reality intertwines with the inexplicable, where the boundaries of reason dissolve into the shadows of uncertainty. Welcome to the political twilight zone. I am your guide to this enigmatic labyrinth, where politics and power take on life of their own. In this dimension, the threads of truth weave a tapestry of intrigue, challenging our perception of the world we thought we knew. In this world, nothing is as it seems, and the truth lies buried beneath layers of deceit. Prepare to venture where reason meets the unexplained, and where the unexplained might well, just hello be. hello out there, friends and neighbors. Welcome back again. Another week flies by here. This is Rick Wagner getting it right here on KZZ KGLN. And we are, of course, at 1100 and 92.7 and, let's see, 980 and 101.3. Not necessarily in that order. And we are also on the Internet and a bunch of other stuff. So uh, join us. And if you can't, well, obviously, if you're listening, you'll catch the show. But if for some reason you want to send the show to someone else, or if you missed part of it, you can find it on our website, therickwagnershow.com, along with all these stories and connections to all of the uh, left uh, opposing sites, as I like to think of them, uh, for news. And I'm sure that they're right-leaning sometimes, as they're just uh, not leftist, (laughs) which has become, by the way, the, shall we say, the chosen description of anything that does not comport exactly with the left-wing large media organizations is, you know, far right. That's correct. Uh, So if you just report things as you see them and it differs from their narrative, it's far right. Interesting. They control the language. This is what happens. Anyway, folks, uh, it's been always quite a week, of course, but I wanted to talk about something in particular that applies to all forms of government, and I, it was came to me again because I was uh, looking at Amelie Schley's. Uh, you know, she wrote uh, recently the Great Society, and it's uh, a modern version of the Great Society. In other words, and she describes what happened during the Great Society push. You know, in the '60s after LBJ and during that period. And we've talked a little bit about it before. It's a fascinating book. I would really recommend that you get a look at it. And, of course, she's the author of The Forgotten Man, which many of you have read, which is just excellent. This one's also very good. And it brings some things to light about the way government operates. It's just like The Forgotten Man. When you're reading it, you can sort of telescope ahead and see how things are exactly the same now, that the same things are happening, the same situations are arising, and there's no real change. It's just different names and you know, different... uh different locations sometimes, sometimes not even that. And so because of that, it's always a fascinating thing to go back, look at history, kind of get it in mind, and then look at today's newspapers. One thing that kept hopping out to me, or popping out perhaps would be better, hopping is sort of like a bunny, uh, but uh, is the idea that there's no accountability in government programs. And when you stop and think about it, the more you think about it, the more apparent it becomes. And it's it's not changed for a very long time. I'm going to assume there was a little bit more scrutiny on government programs maybe 50, 70 years ago, simply because there were more people trying to get eyeballs in newspapers and radio and stuff, and so they're looking for stories. I could be wrong, and I could just be overly optimistic. But what we have now is just like they were speaking about in the 60s. One of the reasons that so many of these projects just kept not only going south on everybody, but just getting worse 
and no, nobody doing anything about it, is the idea that, one, no one holds government accountable for failed programs, or certainly not very industriously what they're trying to hold them accountable. And, and the second thing is, is that since there's no accountability, there's no reason to try and fix it. And because that's not a glaring blemish that seems like it needs to be dealt with, politicians that come along after that project have no incentive to fix it. They want their own projects. We talked about this before. This is something that gets pointed out in that book quite a bit, that some of these real failures in terms of some of these housing projects and things like that were just let to coast further and further downhill with really no attempt to fix them, no meaningful attempt to fix them by following politicians that, you know, have came in after the ones that started it because they're not interested in fixing someone else's problems. They have a whole new agenda. Now, just think about not just our own federal government or even our state government. Just think about your local government. I mean, it's certainly true here. I'm sure it's true in your neighborhoods. Things get started, rec centers, uh, some crazy idea for, you know, some sort of housing project, some this, some that. And there's a lot of hubbub about it. There's a lot of backslapping and self-congratulation when it gets started. But then who checks on it to see if it's working? Who decides if it's a failure or a success? They just kind of fade away, don't they? Once in a while, if there's something really outstanding that happens with them, then they'll try and, you know, burnish that up. But other than that, we don't really know how they're going. Now, that tells me they're probably not going particularly well. Otherwise, they'd be trumpeting. But there's no follow-up, no follow-through. You know, if you have a private company and you take on some new product or way of doing business, it becomes pretty apparent if it's successful or not. You start losing money. Shareholders, if it's traded publicly, begin to complain about the fact that their money's that they have invested in you is now worth less because of these programs. And so changes get made, or at least there's a feedback loop. That doesn't happen in government. Things can lose enormous amounts of money, and they just sort of squirrel it away in the budget. And, you know, rob Peter to pay Paul, all part of the big taxing organization, and it just goes on and on. It's something to think about. And it would be nice if there were people in the community who went out after some of these projects a year or two and tried to remember what they were and then saw if the projections or even predictions about what was going to happen with these projects even came close to being correct. My guess is they are not. They are going to be drastically lower than the predictions, if not failures effectively failures. And will that close them down? No. Do future politicians or future city councilmen or whatever really very interested in fixing that? Not really, no. They've already come into office with a whole new bold plan of their own. Bold, I tell you. Which just means new stuff. And nobody has the idea of fixing anything. It's sort of like a derivation of why nobody wants to buy a trash truck or pave the roads because that's not sexy. It's better to build something or put a park in or some sort of performing arts center that uh, may or may not ever be used by anybody. Those are always more fun. So it's the same thing. They don't want to know if something isn't working. 
because that'll just mean that they'll have to take time from their wonderful new projects and money and try and fix that thing. So unless a eye is brought to bear on these projects and some examination takes place, then there's no incentive for anybody to fix anything. It's only things that completely break down somewhere. You know, when uh, when a school bus, you know, falls into a sinkhole in the uh, street, well, then maybe start, people start examining, you know, how the uh, roads and bridges are being financed. But it takes something like that, usually. But citizens can have something to do with this if you spend a little time. One thing to do is, with the Internet now, you can go back in the Wayback Machine. This is sort of like uh, the Wayback Machine from Bullwinkle that you can go back and and look at some of the stories about when there's all this hoopla and rah-rah and self-congratulations about these projects and what their predictions were. And then you can just do a little bit of research and see if any of that was true. Sometimes it doesn't require a whole lot of research to see that these things are failures. Bring it up at at a meeting. You're a citizen. You have a right to ask what the heck happened here and why isn't anybody taking care of it. See what they say. And that can't hurt. We would hope that media would jump in and help that out. But we know that that 90% of the time, that isn't going to happen. Because media and your local government, in most cases, are joined at the hip. Now, that's only if they're Democrats. Now, if they're Republicans, then they are the enemy, usually, to the media. But, uh, you know, it's uh, it's not something you're going to be able to get them interested in very easily without some disaster falling. But you can confront these people with the failures of their, you know, plans. And you can also ask the new people, say, this didn't work. What are you going to do about it? How are you going to address it? If you bring some spotlight on something and put them on the spot a little bit, that is a heck of a lot more than being done now. I'm just saying, think about the things that have worked and the things that have. All right, everybody, let's get our motors running and... uh Head out on that highway, <laughs> the information highway, or I suppose misinformation highway if uh, people are talking about what uh, regular people are interested in. Uh, the media likes to think that anything that uh, regular people who might have some regular questions about what's going on around them are getting misinformation or spewing misinformation, dangerous misinformation. Remember now that everything that does not conform to the left's version of America, or the world for that matter, is not just wrong, it's dangerous. Have you noticed how much that word seems to pop up anymore? How often it gets used in these arguments when people are at school boards or want to talk about why they don't think it's a good idea to force everybody to have electric cars by 2030 or whatever the case may be. Uh, It's not that even the sort of noblesse of blage kind of thing of like, oh, you just don't understand. It's not even that. It's, uh, you're dangerous. You're, you're putting the climate and people in danger. Or you're putting, uh, your needs before everybody else's because, you know, you're somehow selfish. And if you oppose certain things, especially about individuals, uh, and perhaps the way people are behaving, then you're creating a zone of danger around them. And before you know it, now, someone you're talking to may declare that what you're saying to them makes them feel, this is maybe one of the worst things you can do now, makes them feel unsafe. That's right, unsafe. What kind of word is that anyway? 
I mean, I never heard it until recently. Wouldn't you think the regular sort of formation of I don't feel safe is enough? As opposed to turning into sort of like some sort of noun or gerund, you know, sort of like unsafe, like it's something I feel unsafe. But that, when, when that gets put out there, that's a real stopper in arguments, right? That means somehow you've become too aggressive and they feel threatened. Not just that their ideas are threatened. No, we can't have that kind of discussion anymore. If you debate the ideas uh, or are upset about the, how they're putting some of these ideas into action, then the people who are doing it feel unsafe. If they feel unsafe, well, then obviously some action needs to be taken. And if they're unsafe, then what you're saying isn't really free speech, is it? It's something else. It's something that the government should be regulating to keep people safe. That's all they're trying to do. They're not trying to stifle anyone. They're just trying to keep people safe. It's an interesting progression, isn't it? I mean, you see how it just one thing rolls into another. And once again, we've allowed them to sort of seize these trigger words in the language and become very sensitized to them. And not only do they use them in a way that has certain consequences, but on the receiving end of it, now we've been sort of conditioned to receive them in sort of a more heightened way. Instead of just saying, that's ridiculous. No one's making you feel unsafe. You know, were that a word that you would, it, you know, it, it wouldn't be the case. Right? And this sort of goes along with this whole thing about trying to stand up for things. Don't let them take the language. Don't let them, you know, paint you a certain way. And certainly don't apologize for the way they're painting you if they're not correct. Which is sometimes our immediate response because most of us are polite. And if someone is upset about something, oftentimes we'll say, well, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do that, or I didn't mean to make you feel unsafe. And um, you're giving in to them. And the proper answer is, that's ridiculous. Until more people stand up and sort of challenge these ridiculous notions, this use of speech in a calm, reasoned way, then it's just going to continue. And it's just going to get worse if the past is any guide, right? So, I mean, we are led to certain things uh, by simply agreeing with them, tacitly agreeing with them. You're not saying that you're trying to make this person feel unsafe, but if they're saying they're unsafe, you don't want to fight with them anymore, right? I'm, you know, I'm not trying to make you feel unsafe. You're not unsafe. There's nothing here that is threatening your safety. I mean, I'm thinking about there was uh, this, I think, Dove. Some of you may be familiar with this story. Dove, the product, the soaps and things like that, has uh, a person who they're going to be using for a spokesperson. I don't know if it's for uh, people of a larger size or what the case may be. You maybe have seen the story someplace. But they're also a very uh, outspoken activist for things, apparently Black Lives Matter and sort of things like that. And it seems like a very strange choice. Well, it would have seemed like a strange choice a few years ago. And so there was a story about it in the Daily Mail and a few few other places. And so the Daily Mail, the British publication that does a lot of American news as well, sent a reporter to talk to this person to kind of get what their take was. And this person, of course, wouldn't speak with them. 
and then, according to the story, after they left, uh, notified law enforcement that they felt unsafe from uh, this person asking them questions or trying to ask them questions. Never got a chance to ask them questions. And bear in mind, this is a person who apparently was a big purveyor of the defund the police movement. And how often do you see those people be the first to call the police? How often does Antifa ask for police intervention when someone resists them? Seems like a little more than you would think from people who thought the police shouldn't be even in existence. Yet they stand behind them. It's very interesting. But you can see how that works. As long as we allow it to be exchanged with us without asking, in what way? I've noticed that when people say, in what way am I making you feel unsafe? Uh, they ha- don't have a very good answer to that. I've seen that in a couple of school board meetings where someone said, in what way am I making you feel unsafe? Or uh, anything. No one's threatening you. The only thing is, is we're discussing your ideas. I suppose a good a good answer would be, I understand at one level that you don't feel safe because your ideas are being challenged and they are not winning. So your safety in your own mind about your own ideas and theories and so forth is being challenged. That may make you feel unsafe, but that's not a physical harm. And you can't not be categorized as that. Because the implication there is that, you know, someone's going to like, the next thing is going to be rushing the podium or something. You know. And of course not. The vast majority of these conversations don't even approach anything like that. I suppose that the, the unsafe part of it really is the fact that they don't want you to disagree with them because they know at some level, consciously or unconsciously, that their positions are untenable. And the more you discuss them, the more upset that makes them. And they label that as being unsafe. I I was just thinking about that. Hey, let's look at a couple things in the news that show how things are going so great here. Uh, I I don't know if I talked, I don't think I talked about this last week. You know, Denver has become quite the uh, sort of homestead for a lot of the unhoused. And uh, there was a story last week that was just really interesting that apparently on this, one of these larger homeless camps in in Denver there, and I think it's in the city and county of Denver, but I have to be sure, uh, had a... uh, very big tent that was decked out with an open-air bar and had some other tents that it rented out for uh, transactions involving sexual favors. Now, on the one hand, you have to say, this is entrepreneurism. <laughs> We're giving the people what they want. Uh, so, And also, we tell a lot of these people, why don't you get a job? Apparently, this person has created his own, you know, his, his own employment. The fact that it's all illegal uh, is beside the point. What it shows is that the respect for the law in any form whatsoever is just out the window. I mean, this is uh, brazen. Is that the word we're looking for? Yeah, I think so. And it just isn't brazen to talk about their behavior. But what it is is what does that behavior symbolize? It means society is apparently chosen to do nothing about this and has shackled law enforcement to the point where they can't or won't do anything. Now, it was, once I think the story got out about this, that, you know, that was shut down. But, I mean, they obviously was going for a while, and when the organizers of it, uh, who apparently had some organizational ability, uh, 
clearly thought that nothing was going to be done. Why would they think that unless there was a long history of things not being done? So <laughs> until you get down to some of these bedrock principles, I hate to say this is like the broken windows theory where, you know, if you let, you let small things slide, then big things start happening. Uh, this is very much like that. We let people camp. We let people hand, uh, panhandle. We let them do drugs. We, you know, everything is an escalation. In some places, they get the, they fight in the street. Nothing happens. Uh, passerbys get attacked. Nothing of particular uh, importance seems to arise out of that. It it doesn't just stop there. We do know that when you immerse someone in what feels like a chaotic and somewhat lawless society, that many people will manifest behaviors, antisocial behaviors, that they would not otherwise manifest were they not in that environment. That's clear. So that's what you're doing when you're doing things like this. And this uh, story just shows you that what the thought was about that before they started their business. Uh, okay, everybody, we're back. Thanks a lot for sticking around with us. We appreciate that. Uh, we're back. I, you know, I thought I'd bring up that uh, I didn't post, I don't think I posted anything on our website, that's the rickwagnershow.com, about this Mendendez thing, just because it's just been beaten to death, I think. Uh, we know as much as we're going to know about it. All the indictment was like, what, 39 pages or something? I, mean, <laughs> I, I will say it is funny. I mean, the guy is sort of like a uh, a lowbrow Sopranos kind of thing, you know, where he's sort of a, in a gangland culture, it sounds like, but not a very particularly bright one. But, you know, why why should he take a lot of uh, precautions? He's already been uh, charged with similar stuff a few years ago. I have to look what the date was. But uh, he was tried, and uh, they had a hung jury, and then they just let it go with that. So he's uh, feeling like he's probably like the Teflon Don of the Senate at this point. So, you know, he probably got a little uh, loosey-goosey there and finally attracted the attention of the feds, even though he's a Democrat. Think how bad that must be that the Biden Department of Justice actually would investigate and charge prominent Democrat. That's how bad that is. He must have just been pretty much out in the street, you know, uh, with money bulging out of his pockets and people driving by and, uh, you know, giving checks and then uh, getting favors right in front of everybody. I don't know. It's very, it's interesting. And, you know, there's gold bars and cash and uh, I think a car and uh, home mortgage payments. Maybe. <laughs> it's uh, it's pretty. I, I also heard, and I didn't have time to check this, that. On one of the gold bars they seized, apparently there's a fingerprint on it, so <laughs> that adds that adds to it. But we'll see what happens. I mean, like I said, he's beat one of these charges before, certainly not as uh, voluminous as this one. And every, even Eric Holder has uh, suggested that Menendez should resign from the Senate. Now, that's not going to do much because you may recall in this last election, there was a very, very close race for the governor of New Jersey, which, of course, Menendez is one of the senators. And by some stroke, this peculiarity, uh, the Democrat incumbent managed to just squeak by. And there was a lot of uh, wondering about that. But since he's a Democrat and is a fairly progressive one, uh, you can figure out that uh, if there's a replacement for Menendez, that he's going to be uh, just about as loopy or more so. Maybe then uh, 
than Menendez. So that's not going to help any. However, it would have been nice if we had a Republican governor in there, and we very narrowly did. That would be an interesting uh, change, but that's not going to happen, is it? Also, I, I, I'll bring up again, a question that comes up is, why is it that governors can appoint senators to fulfill a term, but not congressmen? You think the Senate's more important, or at least there's only two of them per state. It's going to, well, remember, that is a holdover from when senators weren't directly elected, but instead were sent from the legislature. So that appointment process uh, falls to the governor now because that piece of it has obviously never been changed. So that's allowed for some interesting results from time to time, as we know. Arizona is a good example of that. But anyway, so I, I just thought, you know, Menendez being in trouble, I just, you know, we'll see what happens there. And if, you know, we want to talk about uh, crime, there's some great crime stories across the United States. Uh, hopefully not where you're at. And if there are, they're far away from you, maybe uh, at least across town if you're in one of the cities. But I thought one of the interesting stories out there is uh, that organized gangs are running a billion-dollar industry, stealing cars from the U.S. to ship to Africa. Hundreds have been found stashed in containers on the East Coast, and there's a theft of a vehicle every six minutes, apparently, uh, about this deal. Now, I often wondered where all these car thefts were going, because, you know, and if you if you steal a car in the United States, it's kind of hard to get rid of it in the United States, because... Uh, they're tracked and licensed and everything. And there's also several different places that the VIN on uh, an automobile appear. Some of them are not known to the public. And certain inspectors, like in Colorado, the Colorado State Patrol investigators know where they are located and so forth. So it, it can be difficult to get rid of a car here. Now, I have known that a lot of them have ended up in Mexico from time to time. But the idea that you put two or three of them in a big shipping container and send them to Africa... That's an interesting idea. <laughs> I I cannot help but wonder what the exchange is. You know, I mean, there's always some sort of discount, right? Uh, so what is it? If you steal like a $50,000 car, do you sell it in Africa for like 25 and then they sell it to someone else uh, for the equivalent of maybe 35 I don't know. It's, a, it's an interesting, it'd be an interesting question to know. There's all of these criminal activities around the edges of things many of which are really profitable for the crime syndicates that we're not very focused on. And, of course, the other part of this, and this is something that Tucker Carlson mentioned in an interview I was reading recently, we don't really pay any attention to the rest of the world. I mean, once in a while we do. We get hyper-focused on Ukraine or when there's some stories about Taiwan, which we should really pay more attention to, or a few things like that. But most of the time, American news is filled with not only things that happen in America, but... The same stories, the same few stories are discussed and discussed and discussed throughout the day. And so what's really going on in the rest of the world, particularly places like Africa, the Indian subcontinent, maybe Australia, you know, places like that, that really have a bearing on what happens here, we just don't get a whole lot of news about them unless there's some sort of crazy flare-up. And then there's a hysteria, and it's the crisis of the day and it's all and it's gone so we have to kind of look around to see what's going on there's a lot going on in africa that's not good for the united states and of course i've talked about before about china's continuing effort to 
get inside of the governments in Africa. And I told you they do this through this roads and bridges program they do, where they approach some of these African governments and they say, look, we'll loan you the money uh, that you can uh, build these roads. And I think they offer to, you know, build the roads and bridges and all these big projects. And uh, you just pay us back, you know, like it's a regular loan. Well, most of the time they can't pay them back. So they become sort of uh, financial wards of the Chinese. They have to come up with some different sort of terms, right? So the Chinese now have sort of a financial control over them. Many of these places, you know, are really in need of these things. And uh, the Chinese are pretty slick about convincing them to get into something that's really more expensive they can afford. So that's one of the things. And, of course, they're targeting places where some of the rare earths are at that we need for components, particularly electronics and so forth. And they're just moving around in there. And they we've seen them other places. The, they're sort of, you know, poking their head up here and there in the Middle East. Uh, their desire is to supplant the United States as the preeminent world power. Does that come as a surprise? No. I mean, they, they say that all the time. But nevertheless, it's, uh, it's obvious if you start looking outside of our borders about what's going on. They're also making overtures down in Central America and begin in early into uh, South America, you know, down there. They're starting to show up and uh, help out some of the communist socialist regimes. And you know, it's very much like the Russians did at the height of, you know, of our Cold War experience in the late 60s, early 70s. But then they sort of had to pull back because they're running out of money, as, <laughs> as we discovered later on. So, uh, but the Chinese don't seem to be having that problem. So it would be nice if we got a little more information about what's going on. And if the information we got was at least moderately uh, correct, right, uh, or at least not slanted, that would be nice. But also there is uh, – I did just post a story because I thought it was interesting – is this story about – these lunar probes we're seeing. You may remember in the news recently that India, one of the few stories I was discussing uh, outside of the United States, India had a successful moon landing. Uh, the Russians tried one, but it crashed, made a big crater up there. But uh, what? why are they doing this? Well, part of it is that they think that there's water, in a, not in a liquid form, but there's water in the in the rocks and perhaps subsurface, in the southern area of the moon, around the southern pole of the moon. And if that's the case, then if you establish some sort of base there, you have what's really one of the most important things for humans, obviously. You can go a long time without eating, but you can't go a long time without water. And water is pretty its pretty expensive to ship. Think about the cost per pound to deliver a payload from the, from the United States, or rather, excuse me, from the Earth. I used to have that figure someplace, how much it, uh, how much cost to get a pound into orbit. I don't have that in front of me, but it's pretty expensive. Water's heavy. So uh, if you can find water, then it's much easier to establish a base because you can ship foodstuffs a lot cheaper than water. A lot of it can be dehydrated so that when you get there, you can add the water that you found. So it's much easier to establish bases of operation if they can discover some way to extract water from on the moon. So they've been trying to do this. We, of course, are, are lucky if we can uh, get to the space station up there that uh, is very old and rickety 
and uh, you just wander around. Our technology for space exploration has greatly dropped off because, of course, NASA is now much more interested in diversity and what is it, uh, diversity, inclusion, and uh, equity than uh, they are apparently exploring. Now, many people say, well, that's a lot of money to spend in that. But we've made a tremendous amount of discoveries because of uh, the space program and made some developments that are you know, in use today. But the other thing is there is kind of a natural defensive argument about it. For instance, uh, I posted this, and uh, there's in 2026, China is planning to send its uh, Chang'e 7 spacecraft on an ambitious endeavor, this is a quote from the story, to the lunar south pole. According to the mission plan, the spacecraft will consist of an orbiter, a lander, a rover, and a small flying probe that will hunt for water ice in shadowed regions. Yeah, and and what I said about that, I put a comment on that, and I'll tell you what I think. I think it's a bad idea to have the Russians and the Chinese floating over our heads with paces. I don't want to sound like a hysteric when Sputnik went up, but it's not a good idea. As I pointed out, it is a fundamental thing of, fundamental just axiom of military theory that you want the high ground, right? (laughs) That would be the high ground. One of the things that being able to establish yourself in outer space, and the moon's a great example of that because its gravity is so much less than that, is that you can essentially target the Earth pretty easily. This is, this is not a great revolution, to, uh, revelation to you, I'm sure. But it makes a lot of very dangerous things a lot simpler. And it is something that I just don't think we should let the Russians and the Chinese just get a hold of it because the idea of looking up and finding that the moon is supposedly uh, mostly owned by uh, the Chicoms and the Soviets, well, excuse me, the Soviets, the Russians, I'll never get over that, uh, would not be a good thing. But I, I just found that interesting. I mean, we're, we just can't focus on anything important anymore. I mean, I put up another story that I wanted to talk about that, and it's so true. It was, it's called America's Rainbow Military is on Track to Lose Another War. And our readiness is just not anything like it should be. And, of course, that's our leadership. And our leadership has failed the common soldier, the kid that wants to get in there and serve his country and is willing to put his life on the line for what he believes in, is having a hard time finding things that he can believe in and also finding a hard time being in a military that's actually interested in winning wars. They seem very interested in other things. Now, we know why that is. They're a tool of this administration which can just order them to do things. They don't have to have any congressional action or anything like that. We've talked about that. But we are, we're falling down on readiness. We've had a lot of accidents right lately, if you've noticed in the news. And this F-35, this was what, a couple days ago, maybe three days ago. This F-35 fighter jet that, was it over Maryland? I think it was that uh, crashed, but the pilot ejected. Landed in some people's backyard, by the way, who called 9-11 and said there's a pilot in her backyard. And they didn't find the plane until like the next day. Now think about that. This is like a hundred million dollar aircraft. Uh, It just disappeared. 
and they had to ask the public to help them look for it? Were there bloodhounds out there? I mean, were guys with metal detectors going out? I mean, what's the deal? Does that sound like a competent military to you? I mean, don't we have some radar that helps out with that? Now, what I understand is this this plane, when the pilot ejected, was very low, just like 100, 100 feet off the ground, which is incredibly low for a jet fighter. They don't function particularly well at that altitude either. So it probably was under the, the radar net. But nevertheless, doesn't it have some kind of sophisticated at that expense, some kind of a sophisticated location device on it. People just aren't buying the story that it was weather because people around the area where it was ejected said the weather wasn't that bad. So and that was a story that they gave out. I don't know if you ever noticed when the, the military is the worst at covering things up. They just apparently make these stories up uh, off the top of their head while they're driving to a press conference because they're almost always not very good and usually easily debunked. But their story was that, oh, there was weather and this and that. Okay, why can't you find it? One of the, I suppose we call it a conspiracy theory, but I don't think it's really a conspiracy theory. For some time, there has been some discussion that the F-35 could be hacked because it is so full of computerized uh, I don't want to say it's not a computerized pilot system, but everything is fly-by-wire in these jets. And the more sophisticated they become, the more the pilot is really just in charge of signaling the software to do certain things. And so if that software could be compromised, then think about what it could do to the plane. So this is such a bizarre situation, and now people are saying, well, maybe it was hacked. Maybe someone was trying out how to get in the computer system of this plane. Now, I have absolutely no idea how you go about that. But apparently there are ways, but we don't know if that was what happened. But it certainly has got those people stirred up with this particular incident. But beyond that, what's happening to the military? Uh, you know, you put your sons and daughters out there to go in there, and you, you get people like uh, Millie leading them or uh, Lloyd Austin at the Department of Defense. Now, look at his statements. Does this, do these sound like a, a people who believe that the military's first mission is to win a war? That beyond any other thing, you have to have combat readiness, the ability to project force, and overcome the enemy. Now, if you want to have secondary objectives, once that's done, more power to you. But if those objectives seem to become more important than that, it's you're just asking for a whipping. And that seems to be what's coming out here. Uh, what do we hear about the military these days? What successes have we heard? I mean, there's a few, I'm sure, if we stopped and thought about it. But it just doesn't seem the same. And we're still sending, you know, our some of our best and brightest kids uh, into the military. So what's the problem? Well, the officer corps, particularly seems like Fulberg colonel and above, are just becoming completely politicized. Now, we know why that is, because if you want to become a general, Congress has to approve it. And it's good to be, you know, rubbing shoulders with politicians and doing the right thing and getting your superiors at the Pentagon to notice you. So it becomes very political at that point. 
And then if you're already at that point where you're going to retire as a, you know, a general officer or a flag officer in the Navy, uh, you usually want to go to work for somebody. And usually one of the big defense contractors would be just, just peachy. Now, in order to keep themselves virtuous, they've become quite woke. So you become quite woke. So you fit in. Now, you can't just wave a wand over you and say, oh, okay, now that I'm out, I'm all woke and I fit right into your corporate structure that you're trying to show everybody how virtuous you are. But instead, I have to start manifesting that before I ever get out. So I need to make sure that everybody knows that, you know, I am a, you know, a progressive warrior uh, before I get out and can start looking for a job. And of course, these companies, because of the way Congress and the Democrat Party, the progressives anyway, are aligned that the defense contractors and so forth don't want to get singled out as being some sort of, you know, ism or ogenist or whatever you want to say. Uh, just fill in the first parts. Uh, you know, I mean, are we misogynist? Are we, uh, you know, uh, I don't even know anymore. There's so many of them. So they're, you know, they don't want to seem that way because then they might not get government contracts. There'd be problems with this or that. So they follow the way the people with the money go and the people with the money are in government. So that's the direction they head. So if you want to fit in, that's the way you got to go. So I think this has really harmed the officer corps. And because their focus has become less on readiness and more on wokeism. It used to be you got evaluated by how effective and efficient your units were. Now, I think there are other criteria that have less to do with battle and more to do with politics. And so we just get this feeling that the military is being downgraded by all this, you know, all this stuff might have to do something to do with the, uh, with the chief executive there who uh, managed to walk into a flag and uh, wander off the stage when he was talking to the president of Brazil, who's a terrible socialist, by the way, um, just, you know, wandered off, bumped into the flag, looked like he was uh, trying to find supper. And, uh, <laughs> and you look at that and you go, oh, OK, yeah, that, that explains a lot. Uh, that's the commander in chief. Uh, that's uh, that's how things are going. And if, and if you want to just feel like that there's ineptness everywhere, and for all of us people who believe in the Second Amendment, this might actually be a good thing, but the symbolism of it in terms of how the government gets run, it's a bad thing. Uh, Kamala Harris has been part of, has been made the, the gun czar for the uh, administration for their Office of Gun Violence, and she's supposed to oversee that. So she does the kind of job she did on the border and things like that. Uh, we can expect her to do absolutely nothing. So that might be helpful to people who still believe in the Second Amendment. But the idea that they feel like they need one of these departments uh, does not bode well for the next round of legislation having to do with firearms. we got to make sure these guys don't win the next election, folks. we got to get out and vote. I'll see you next week.